All right, welcome to episode eight of season two of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. Um, Today, we're going to be covering one of my favorite topics, a topic that's very close to my heart, your live strategy and efficient touring, plus how festivals are booked. Um, So quickly to recap what we've covered so far, you've gotten your art together with Vernon Reed of Living Color. We talked about your pre-recording marketing foundation and monetizing your music before it's even out. We've gotten our business affairs together legally. You've recorded. You've registered your songwriting to collect on your publishing in full, and you're all set up to land sync placements. You've released and distributed distributed your music properly. Uh, and on Tuesday, you learned how to spread the word on your music through marketing. So now it's time to uh, play live. Um, so quickly, before I bring our first guest out, because we have two guests today, um, you know, similar to getting your art together when you're preparing to play live, practice makes perfect, right? So you need to rehearse, you need to get ready, you need to get your show together. We're definitely going to talk today about really focusing in on your release show and not spreading yourself too thin around the market. But at the same time, you know, if you want to do a warm-up show that's um, an open mic or if you want to play like a bar under a pseudonym or something, that's okay too. But rehearse, 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 prepare, prepare, prepare. Don't just, you know, show up and, uh, you know, wing it. Um, when I was an intern, I had the privilege of being on an interview shoot with Michael Stipe of REM. And this is when the strokes, uh, were kind of breaking and he was asked, you know, what do you think about a band becoming so popular so quickly? And he said, I feel so fortunate that REM was able to, uh, play in bars to no one for years and really gel together as a live unit. And that made us the band that we are, right? So we don't necessarily... Um, we, we don't have that as much anymore, right? Because everyone has a phone, everyone has a camera, but that's why you need to rehearse, prepare. Because I also, you know, I'm just remembering this now. I remember um, there was like a bidding war over an artist and all these labels, you know, put offers in and they did a huge deal. I'm, I'm kind of shocked, but I'm also not that the labels hadn't seen this artist play live yet. And then they're, you know, the artist was playing a showcase at South by Southwest and all the labels realized like, oh my gosh, this artist can't play live at all, right? So just like getting your art together for recording, um, you need to practice, prepare, do some warm-up gigs and then really hone in um, on that big show that you're doing on, on that release show. So um, just a little bit about our first guest. Matt Berenger is COO and partner with the Paps Theater Group. Matt has worked in concerts and live events for 20 plus years as a talent buyer, promoter, and building operator. As an early foundational member of the Paps Cedar Group, he helped grow the business from approximately 30 events per year to over 750 events annually, spanning a hugely diverse range of genres with over $25 million in annual gross revenue across PTG's portfolio of concert venues, which of course include the historic Paps Theater, Turner Hall Ballroom, the Riverside Theater, Miller High Life Theater, the Backroom at Collectivo, and the Fitzgerald. I'm so psyched to introduce Matt Berenger of the Paps Theater Group. Come on up. I like the woos for Matt. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, guys. Awesome. Okay, so let's, let's start at the beginning. 
Where are you from? Where, I'm from Wisconsin. I, I grew up in uh, Delavan, about an hour or so south of here. And um, I went to school in Oshkosh. Mm -hmm. And after school, I moved um, back here to Milwaukee. Fantastic. Um, did you study music business at Oshkosh? I did not. I was a communications major. Okay. Well, that's also so, yeah. very helpful. In... Yeah. Although kind of. I mean, one of the things that, you know, when people talk about, well, how did you get in or, yeah. or where did you get started? Um, I think a lot of people that are, especially in the booking world, but mm -hmm. also the agent, also the agent, is that better? Okay, and sure. actually, uh, I don't care that we're on live stream. Could I get the iPad up here at some point? No rush. Thank you. Sure. Um, so, I, you know, a lot of people that I've come across, you know, I thought I had this, like, really unique, like, oh, God, like, I got into it this way or that way or whatever. And it's yeah. like almost everybody has, I, I feel like, some version of the same path, or, or a lot of people do. And so um, when I was in school, I was afforded the opportunity to book bands for my school, book artists and comedians and that kind of thing for my school. Almost all of those universities of any level of size have some, and especially, you know, what, 25 years ago had good entertainment budgets and you would bring um, artists to campus. And that was uh, for sure, you know, if any, when younger people approach me and say, well, how do I get into booking or how do I get into managing or whatever? And, uh, it, you know, to me, especially if you're in college, um, taking advantage of some of those opportunities, whether they volunteer or, or whatever. Um, and that was where I at least got started. I mean, I had been in bands and a musician and that sort of thing, but that wasn't a real viable path for me. And I wasn't really looking for it to be a viable path, but um, definitely getting into the university programming, taking just about any odd job. I worked at Alpine Valley down here as a 17-year-old doing security, which was really odd being 150 pounds and six foot two. It wasn't very uh, convincing security, security guard at Alpine Valley, but, um, but you know, in between that, taking just kind of just about any job I could get that was somehow associated with the business. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I love that you're from here and that you stayed here. Um, and you've just built you know, something so special at Pap Cedar Group, because I'm sure I've shared this with you. And maybe I'm biased with like the Britpop bands I love, but I feel <laughs> like when I was growing up here, they would play Chicago and Minneapolis sure. and then skip um, Milwaukee. But to go from, you know, 300 events a year to 750, 30, 30 or events, th yeah. sorry, 30, <laughs> three zero, um, you know, you guys are so proactive and, and do such a great job, which, um, and, and like, we deserve it because we have these amazing, yeah. gorgeous venues. Well, I, I think that, um, I mean, Milwaukee in general has a little bit of a inferiority complex mm. at times. And, and I, I think that at least when we got started, um, I was told, you know, I'd say, okay, we want to bring in something like Bell and Sebastian. Mm -hmm. And I was told, well, that will never work in mm -hmm. Milwaukee. It's not a cosmopolitan enough city or mm -hmm. one thing or another. And, um, you know, look, sometimes... It is true that there are artists, I mean, it, it still happens where people mm -hmm. will ask us, hey, why didn't such and such an artist play Milwaukee? And um, I would, I mean, in terms of diverse booking and trying mm -hmm. to bring in things to the city um, that are eclectic and that are happening in other markets, it's the, a big piece that we're striving for. Um, but, uh, you know, 
when you think about an artist touring, and especially when you talk about European artists or yeah. artists um, from other countries um, touring, you get into the Midwest and we say, okay, there's going to be, depending how many dates they're planning mm -hmm. on, let's say they've planned four dates in the Midwest. So we're for sure going to do Chicago. We're for sure going to do Minneapolis. And then the next two are some jump ball of Milwaukee, Cleveland, Detroit, mm -hmm. Indianapolis, St. Louis, on and on and on. So it can be challenging um, as kind of that, what's the next down the line? But we do, uh, with Pabst Theater Group especially, try to strive to say, let's be a, a truly eclectic, you know, and, and put Milwaukee uh, on the map as a, a major league city. I, I can't always uh, make everybody happy, and I wish that I could, but... Um, Definitely, we're trying all the time. Well, I'm a lot happier than I was oh, in eighth okay, grade okay. Um, here. But, um, you know, <laughs> I've had a really great time, not to digress too much, I've had a really great time here the past month, and I kind of feel like Milwaukee is the Brooklyn of Chicago, and I live in Brooklyn, and I, I mean, we've got all our warehouses, right. there's cool stuff going on here, so um, <laughs> you're definitely a big part of that. Um, I just read a fairly dense bio. Um, what do you do? How would you describe what you do to people? I mean, primarily, I mean, primarily I'm helping to run a business, Yeah. you know, which is this kind of, it, it started out, you know, hey, I'm, I mean, a long time ago, it started out, I'm ordering office supplies and making sure that the calendars are right. And then it, it but it extremely small business at that time. Mm -hmm. And then it's um, evolved in a number of ways, um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, my primary concern is making sure that there's as much content coming through mm -hmm. the venues as we possibly can and thinking hard about you know booking and promoting shows um but there's also the mundane boring business stuff mm -hmm. too you know are our managers properly scheduling our employees is the accounting being done all that sort mm -hmm. of thing so it's it, it's quite broad um but over the course of my career i've considered myself a a booker a talent buyer yeah I, I would yeah. consider you that, too. You. <laughs> um, and I will say, for any agents and artists to side, no offense to, the, to Cleveland and Detroit and stuff, you guys have amazing in-house catering at okay. some of your venues. Like, the best I've ever had tied with the Tabernacle in Atlanta. Oh, so. thank you. Yeah, well, that that's definitely, um, you know, a part of the formula. is mm -hmm. When we talk about that, you know, like I said, if we say, well, there's four Midwestern stops for any artist, mm -hmm. um, it definitely, you know, one of the, what can you do? The question as a venue, um, what can you do to set yourself apart? Yeah. And you think about, I mean, really at the end of the day, it's artists and artist management mm -hmm. making the decision on where they want to play. And the artist has a lot of pull over what markets, mm -hmm. what venues uh, they want to play. And, uh, you know, when you think about the different ways that you can interact with an artist, um, Number one, don't screw up production, right? That's important. Uh, number two, be kind to the fans. Mm -hmm. And I think a, a huge one that can make a big impact is definitely backstage hospitality and catering. And so, um, you know, we have a private chef on staff mm -hmm. whose job is to cook just for artists. We have coffee baristas at each show. We're, Got a pastry chef. I mean, pause there for a second. There is things. sorry to interrupt. There's a private barista in the basement, <laughs> like backstage at the Paps. Like I don't know if I've ever seen that anywhere. So, I mean, it's you know you know what's funny about it is um, 
Glenn Hansard from mm -hmm. the Swell Season and the Frames, you know, they, they, when they came across the barista, it was like, oh my God, we can't believe it, and da 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 da. And then the next time the truck pulls off, they wheeled off a little barista station that they were taking into each of the venues because it was like, oh my God, we got to replicate this. It's like coffee is important. There's yes. no, especially um, for overworked art. Tired out artists. That's that's a fact. A hundred percent. And tour managers. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I keep talking about the Dresden Dolls, but Brian Viglione from the yeah. band has toured with you know, with toured with Nine Inch Nails, the Violent Femmes, and the Paps is his favorite room that's worldwide. Great. That's yeah. great. Okay, so we're gonna get into the nuts and bolts of the first half of this episode. Um, we're gonna talk about booking a show, promoting a show. So, how should an artist artist decide where they want to play? Uh, excuse me, where they should play versus where they want to play. <laughs> where they should play yes. versus where they want to play. Maybe I should have taken the questions in advance. <laughs> I, I mean, from an artist's perspective, look, I, I think there's no right answer to where should you play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think in terms of clubs and that kind of stuff, um, you know, I think it's important to be somewhere where there's representational of national headline talent. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's important. I think that says a lot about a club or a venue. Um, if it's not just, you know, tonight we've got the Aussie cover band and then tomorrow night we've got the Guns N' Roses cover band. This might not be if you're trying to do an original, um, you know, whatever. So that's kind of where are the fans going to be? Mm -hmm. Um, when you look at Milwaukee, uh, you know, the example that I would use is, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of great clubs. I don't want to mm -hmm. slight anybody, but definitely when you look at places like the Cactus Club and the Cooperage and some of these others, and again, I'm sure I left somebody out in an egregious error and I'm really sorry in advance, but um, all of those clubs here are serious about booking both national headline talent. Mm -hmm. um, they're serious also, I think, about supporting the local scene. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, those are, are places that you also know then they're going to have, hopefully, uh, their shit together yes. in terms of what they're doing. There's, a lot of places can be a bar with a stage. Yeah. And when we look at something like Cactus Club or the Cooperage, um, I, I mean, there's still a bar with a stage. There's no, no getting around that. But... There's something about the ethos of those places um, that is different than the place that, you know, what they're putting on the stage is the Ozzy cover band or, yeah. or whatever. Not, not to say we don't do an occasional, you know, tribute show at our places, but that's not the thrust of what we do. It's about, and places that are serious about artist development, I think will be obvious. Yeah, and that there's a reason why, like, the White Stripes played Cactus Club, and right. it's like, that's not a coincidence. At the same time, and you did reference this, um, I worked at the Paradise Rock Club in Boston when I was in college, and it was, like, my favorite venue. I knew every artist that came in, and then I remember saying to the production manager, who's Super Diamond that booked out three <laughs> nights? And he's like, oh, yeah, this yeah. is a Neil Diamond cover band that crushes and sells a ton of tickets. So they're out there. And, and, and look, for um, venues, I mean, that's another thing that is is kind of tough. It's like when we're talking about, uh, if people look at our calendar. I mean, we just got done with a really pretty incredible sales month of January for the Paps Theater. And that's it great. was almost all tribute product. Yeah. And it's because, hey, look, that's what's touring, or, or that's, that's what understands uh, where to fill the holes in and fill the gaps in. 
Um, if it was the only thing we did, mm -hmm. it would be very problematic, I think, right. for the future, both of the venues and, you know, kind of some of the positive things that you were talking about. But it's not a slight on no. tribute product mm -hmm. at all. But in terms of developing an original, you know, career, um, you know, there might be some signs there. A hundred percent. Yeah. So how far out should an artist or their team contact you or someone at Paps Theater Group to get a decent hold? And we'll define hold in a second at, say... Sure. Backroom at Collectiva, which what's the capacity there? Like 200, 300? 300 at the okay. backroom. I mean, it, it, there's no right answer. Um, there, there's a wrong answer. Like two or three weeks before the yeah. show is the wrong answer for sure. Um, I, I, you know, the calendars do book up very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sending in, you know, in, in May of this year right now, I'm still sending some holds. They're slowing down. But I'm into like 10th and 11 holds on some of the weekends that are still available. Yeah. And so when you start into, um, you know, trying to clear those dates, trying to open up those dates, it can get pretty hairy. Um, so being proactive, um, I think, is important. But there's, you know, it's like there's also a little bit of a fine line. And somebody mm -hmm. says, hey, we want to play, you know, Saturday, December 15th of 2024. Sure. Like, oh, God, I don't even know. <laughs> living in Mexico by then. I yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah. totally. So it just depends. And I will say, I wanted to add to with the, um, when you're deciding on where you should play, I think you got what we were saying. Be realistic, right? Yeah. Like anyone that's ever hosted a party, I swear everyone who says they're going to come to the party doesn't come, but then a lot of other random people in a good way actually do come, right? So I would say like, be realistic because it's hard to get people out the door, off the couch, parking, babysitter, all of that, and then maybe even cut it in half because you want to build um, a really successful show. And as far as um, how far to reach out to you, are you still seeing like a, a big bottleneck coming out of the pandemic? Because obviously suddenly the market was flooded and everyone wanted to tour. Um, I feel like it has been going in waves. Okay. You know, um, right now that's what, I, you know, I've heard a lot of people talking about 23 and you're, you're having artists loosen up now mm -hmm. again on touring. It's not like it was in sort of the, there was like a window in the fall of 21 where everybody thought it was safe. They booked a bunch of stuff and then Delta came down yeah. and it was like, oh, we're back to canceling all mm -hmm. of these shows. And so there was, you know, in, in that case, um, the irony for us was the one thing we were able to hang on to was a lot of stand-up comedy yeah. because it it didn't require the same level of complexity of touring that a band does. Um, so we kind of, kind of got ripped in the paper here about mm -hmm. booking too much stand-up for one thing or another. It's like, oh, we've got it. Are you guys done with bands? It's like, well, this is the no. only thing that's touring right now. But the, the fact was, um, like now, I think you are seeing more that are saying, okay, we have an open road and it's mm -hmm. safe. Does that? But I'm not seeing it as a uh, congested environment or anything like that. I still see tickets selling really well. I still see people excited about coming out to lots of different things. So it's not, I, I don't think there's a saturation going on. Yeah. Well, and just to, um, that's interesting that the paper said that because it's like, um, that just shows whoever wrote that doesn't understand production. Um, <laughs> because uh, we managed Margaret Cho for a long time yeah, yeah. and she was playing Radio City Music Hall. And I remember my business partner at the time saying like, oh, I hope the promoter's not upset because our guest list isn't too big. I'm like, you don't have gear. This, right. is the this is the easiest day, you know, of the week for them. So, I mean, sound check is a mic. It's two seconds. So yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's why. And that, that makes a lot of sense. 
Okay. Um, what is appealing to you from a strategy standpoint when a local artist with a following contacts you? Well, I mean, it's funny. Some of the things you touched on in your intro, I think, mm -hmm. is really important. Um, for sure, a level of discipline mm -hmm. about being deliberative about their plays. Um, you know, one of the things that's been going on with the back room at Colectivo, for instance, that's the 300. And that is a room that we, at least in the beginning, were pretty hesitant to do, um, you know, local bands at a really mm -hmm. high level in terms of a headlining success. And that's absolutely not because we weren't trying to be supportive of local music. In fact, at some level, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, we saw all of these clubs around town that were filling that need. Yeah. And, um, you know, we said, look, that, that space is covered. What's not going on here is there is, you know, some of the more eclectic headline touring and developmental mm -hmm. stuff from around the country. Um, we were trying to push more on that as a strategy. We have started just because, I, uh, you know, to do more local artists as headliners and allow, uh, you know, the premise of let's build a, a bill and that kind of thing. Um, at the back room at Colectivo, because I th but but clearly for me the way that our business is set up, it needs to go somewhere next. Yeah. And um, unless we can credibly say, okay, you know, two plays from now or the next play or whatever, this will be up in Turner Hall, at the you know yeah. thousand cap version there, or going all the way up to you know the larger rooms. That has to be at some level part of the baked in strategy if we're going to be you know, working with local development, developing artists, it should be hopefully a, a good sign to um, those that we've worked with over at, at the back room, but it doesn't, it, it's not indicative of how you think about it, but I, I think discipline and like a long-term plan, two, three plays out, you know, it is discouraging um, as a promoter, local or otherwise, um, when you have an artist and say, well, they're headlining my room, and then I find out, oh, oh, by the way, they're opening for somebody a week earlier, and they've already scheduled their next follow-up play mm -hmm. three weeks later, and it's because, yeah, it, you know, it, it is definitely, especially as you get a little bit of buzz as a band, it's easy to get booked here, here, and here, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, the owners of the rooms know they will draw and they'll sell beer and that kind of thing, I, you know, but um, that can be a short-term, you know, bad strategy, or long-term bad strategy, short-term good strategy for uh, getting gigs. And we're going to get into that. Um, but, you know, to me, what I'm hearing you saying is, what's your hard ticket history in the market? Uh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. And what does hard tickets mean? What does hard tickets mean? Well, in terms of the, you know, nomenclature, uh, hard tickets are when I can connect that I have a fan that has bought a ticket for your show and not... Uh, you know, the classic kind of soft ticket thing we talk about is like a casino, mm -hmm. right? When you go to a casino, um, it's kind of part of the, uh, uh, you know, the buffet of things going on. Um, festivals are considered mm -hmm. soft tickets. It doesn't mean that a festival is a bad thing. Actually, in many cases, understanding that it's played festivals, had good festival slots. Mm -hmm. It's still at some level a soft ticket because it's part of a, broader attraction, not just the headline band. Um, so yeah, if somebody says, hey, this group just sold out XYZ Room, and you know, they did it to the tune of 400 tickets, mm -hmm. 
can we look at Turner Hall next time for a thousand tickets? Um, yes, you yeah. know, and having some credible evidence that there's a fan base there that goes out past moms and dads and friends and whatever, you know. Although there's nothing kind of wrong with that. Uh, my friend Emily Brodsky sold out the Mercury <laughs> Lounge in New York. She's like, my grandmother is here. Oh, my, no, they're invited. They're invited. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like like those networks are important. 100%. But it, again, it's like building a foundation and a fan base of people that don't know you is important yeah. too. <laughs> Definitely. And re- so also what we're saying here, like if you're doing a free show and a ton of people were there or... Um, right. Yeah, exactly. Or you opened for someone. Like, oh, I opened for someone and there was a thousand people there. Like, going to Matt and saying, I am good for 200 tickets at Cactus Club or whatever, um, you know, is, is what we're talking it's about. It's attribution, definitely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, I would think saying, like, this is my release show. And this is what you're saying, too. Right. Like, I'm going to be focusing on this, not right. Right. playing every night, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then also maybe some promo support, too. Like, hey, I'm getting played on Radio Milwaukee. I have Planetary Group behind me. I have, you know, this is what I have going on. That like, stuff is big. And, yeah. and, and definitely, especially from the standpoint of developing artists or local artists, if you don't have representation, an agent, yeah. a manager, or something like that, um, it's still important to get out and make those relationships. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest, I, I think that, you know, is one of the most overlooked things in the business. Um, with people looking at it from the outside is understanding um, my job isn't just to be a kick-ass artist. Mm -hmm. It's also to make relationships and understand them, not in a negative way, but in a way that is, uh, you know, if somebody is asking for a support slot at any of our rooms, um, you know, it doesn't hurt. It, It does not hurt to have an artist reach out directly. You know, we don't, I don't necessarily need, it always, it helps to have an agent Mm-hmm. who I know and have worked with and trust to make the ask. Yeah. But it doesn't hurt um, as an artist to reach out directly. But it's like any relationship mm-hmm. where there is a, a fine line between am I making good educated asks? Yeah. Am I, um, you know, am I making an appropriate number of asks? Mm-hmm. You know, did I email this person 10 times this week and go down their whole calendar? Or mm-hmm. Did I look at something that I thought maybe my band could be a good fit for? Um, you know, I'm not asking to open for an artist that's playing, you know, three nights at the Riverside or something like that. Yeah, maybe someday. And I do have some pretty interesting stories of, you know, over the years, some artists have had last minute, very improbable support slots. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I'm trusting those kinds of things when they come up last minute on a real biggie like that to somebody that we've gotten to know, um, you know, and, and especially in those cases, it helps with support um, not to turn your nose up at things yeah. either. Um, you know, if a promoter, if you're saying, okay, I'm emailing this promoter, you know, every couple of months, hey, I noticed so-and-so is playing, there's a good chance a lot of those headline, uh, you, know, you know, national headline touring artists are going to be carrying their own support. Yeah. Um, you know, when I get asked for uh, local support, I'm the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to open up. Okay, who's been calling me? Who's been talking to me? Who who's been looking for a show? You know, and then as you say, what are some of the other factors that I understand about it? Is uh, the radio station interested in it? Um, you know, have they played with other artists, or have they played with other artists for me? Have they taken chances? 
Um, so that's kind of, I mean, in terms of local support and that kind of thing, I think those are the strategies I think make sense. I yes. Know. And I'm going to echo that you said um, emailing, you know, a, a promoter like Matt once every few months. And I would say keep those emails short. Correct. Yes. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, my attention span is very bad, you know, and it's, I, I'm not proud of that, but it's like, I would say that kind of about resumes too. It's like, yeah. can you keep it like about like that, you know, where the important information, you can put other stuff in there, but like really, um, you, you know, and people, you know, I think sometimes we'll get offended with like, I, I try to be I try to be at least somewhat communicative in my responses, but there's plenty of people in the business where it's just no, yes, not enough time, can't do it, whatever, or just don't respond at all. Um, and especially when I was younger in my career, I'd read a lot into those answers. If an agent for an artist would respond with a no, I go, what did I do? You know, it's like, I must have pissed them off. And it's like, you call them, I'm really sorry about that last email. No, no, no. What are you talking about? Totally. Just, you know, I was busy. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's what I was just going to say. You were, you were just really hard on yourself. And I think unnecessarily to say you have a short attention span. You're busy. You get a lot of emails. And so we've been talking a lot about the goal is for the email to get read. Right. Right. Absolutely. So that's what we're talking Brevity about. Brevity is. Yeah. It's a virtue. Exactly. Okay, so we've used the word hold a few times. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so I've reached out to you. I'm an artist. You know, I've reached out, um, you know, far in advance enough to maybe play one of your rooms. And you're going to come back to me, you, you said before, like maybe eighth holds. Like, what it, What does that mean? Okay, so um, for a lot of the rooms that, you know, are booking more than a handful of shows, mm -hmm. um, their calendars are going to operate along a pretty standard format where, um, you know, any artist that comes in and says, okay, we're routing a tour, most of the time the sequence is not, you know, let's pick the date, send the offer, okay, I confirm. Yeah. Usually the sequence is something along the lines of, here's a range of dates that I think I could fill this in on, mm -hmm. and around that time, Let's get an offer in from the promoter, whether that's the room or an outside promoter, or whatever. Let's mm -hmm. so let's secure what dates we think will work. Um, let's secure an offer, and then usually it's a matter of months or weeks or whatever that the artist can come around and say, "Okay, I've figured out the puzzle pieces nas nationally, and I'm ready to start confirming shows." Mm -hmm. um, if you go into a venue calendar and they tell you that your first hold lucky you because you pick your date and you can email the promoter and say, I'm ready to confirm. I see that we're first hold, all systems go. Mm -hmm. um, if there are other artists holding in front of you, if they've gotten to the calendar before you have, um, then what you need to do is you need to say, can we challenge X, Y, Z Well, dates? and sorry to interrupt. So like in that instance, you would say your fourth hold, your eighth uh, hold. Your fourth hold, yeah. your eighth hold. That's how many artists are holding in yep. front of you. And we issue a date challenge, the sort of informal rule of a date challenge. Some people say uh, 24 hours to confirm and clear everything up, and anybody that didn't respond is out of luck. Um, look, I will tell you that if you challenge a date and, like, Death Cab for Cutie is holding in front yeah. of you and they don't respond to me, yeah. I'm sorry, we're going to take <laughs> a little more time with that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it's nothing personal, but that's... That's how that kind of hold system works, and yeah. and it's not there's necessarily hard and fast rules. Everybody does it a little bit differently, but most of the industry operates along that side for um, 
you know, at least, you know, headline mm-hmm. rooms like ours. Yeah. yeah. And so you used another vocab term challenge. Okay. So I'm fourth hold. <laughs> um, and I say, okay, I mean, I know what to say, but let's define this. Like I'd like to challenge for right. the date. Right. So what I'll, does that mean? I will say, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call the person who is the first hold. Mm-hmm. You have a challenge on who's, this who's date. Who's not death cab for cutie. Not de- well, maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. I could see, well. Because, I mean, we're getting a little in the weeds here. They could be holding the whole month. They too. could be. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's impolite, but it is true. And they could be holding the whole month. Uh, you know, in some cases, well, we'll go there later. But, like, um, so I'll call the artist and say, hey, I have a challenge on this date. You know, 24-hour period, can you let me know whether you intend to confirm the date or release? If they release, I go down the list to the next artist and go through the same process. So you can imagine if I've got 10 artists holding on the date and I've got to reach out and go down, down, down. Um, it can take a little while to clear some of those dates. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's how it works. <laughs> And you guys don't necessarily have to like memorize these terms if you're booking your own shows, but I want you to know um, what these words mean when you see them in an email. Um, so hold and challenge are very important. Okay, so you've cleared the holds in front of me. What mm-hmm. happens next? Um, so if, if you've, you've said, okay, a challenge, I'm ready to confirm, then we go to contract, yeah. right? And um, at that time, uh, we'll also define when we're going to be announcing the show, when we're going to be going on sale with the show. Um, you know, professional artists are going to have a marketing letter mm-hmm. and a ticketing letter that they will send that will say, okay, here are all the assets mm-hmm. to market the show, and hopefully we get that stuff well in advance. Here's the time frame that we intend to announce the show. Um, strategically, uh, the best thing to do for most artists is to announce a bunch of dates at one time so you get the biggest national press pop that you can. Um, and, uh, you know, so at that time we get all those things together. We define that on sale. Um, the contract usually comes along somewhere in, in that time period. Mm-hmm. Typically the artist is the one that issues the contract in our world. Okay. Um, that's not right, always duh. the case yeah. in smaller venues, but typically... We're looking for the artist to issue the contract, and then we mark mm-hmm. it up and say yes, no, okay, and yeah, off to the races. Totally. Um, so, in those deals, do any of your rooms ever offer door deals? Maybe collect you. Sure, absolutely, from? absolutely. And 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 you know what? That's not um, exclusive to just smaller artists, by the yeah. way. Um, especially in the world of because when you get up to the you, you know the bigger thousand plus or even five hundred, whatever, we're, we're starting to take. Artist payment is based on some version of either like a guarantee versus the gross after expenses, and we're bringing in production expenses. Um, But especially in the jam band world, you see a lot of artists that just want, I want X, Y, Z percentage of the door. I don't care if there's a guarantee. I don't care if anybody comes to the table and tells me what I'm going to be making. They're betting on themselves. They know their fans. They know they're going to sell the tickets. As an artist, that can put you in a better position mm-hmm. to make more money, you know, A, because you're not um, beholden to some set of expenses that the artist or, or that the promoter defines, mm-hmm. which I'm a very honest guy, but sometimes <laughs> it can be bullshit, you know. Sometimes there are expenses that, you know, artists will look at and rightfully go, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. And 
they say, well, this is a revenue center, <laughs> you know, and this is how we make money. But, um, you know, if you, if you say, okay, I'm, I'm, if I'm willing to do a, a trade-off here, where I, as the artist, am willing to take some risk and not get a guaranteed payment, but I'm betting on my fans to come out, um, you know, there's an ability to avoid some of that uh, complication that the expenses set up. There's also just a basic ability to maximize uh, your revenue as an artist. So what is a door deal okay. versus, you use the term guarantee. Sure, so if we say we have a guarantee versus, I'll say, okay, I have a guaranteed payment, let's say it's $5,000. Mm -hmm. And then I'm gonna, you know, in general, in our world, it's like a versus 85 deal, mm -hmm. which means we take all of the gross, whatever the ticket price is, say the tickets, you know, 20 bucks. We take that gross, um, you know, if we sell, if we sell. Maybe start with door deal first. We'll start with door yeah. deal. Much simpler, sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. So door deal is simple. If the, if the ticket price is $20, and we say we're gonna do a 50-50 door deal split, mm -hmm. um, then we just say, the promoter gets 10 bucks, the artist gets 10 bucks, yep. right? As the artists get more famous, mm -hmm. they can command a higher percentage, mm -hmm. um, but it does have an upper limit. And as they demand more production requirements, that plays into that as well, not necessarily on its face, but in terms of the negotiating. Um, the versus deal is, you know, where we say we have a guarantee mm -hmm. and then we do that against expense. Mm -hmm. um, so we come up with a net after the expense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, a door deal. And I, I see this a little bit more time at like bars sometimes too. You might get like 80, 90% of the door from dollar one. And what Matt's saying is the reason you might want to consider that sometime, I would say, especially in your hometown, is you know you're going to draw here, right? And I'm not surprised to hear that the jam bands are doing that because they sell a lot of tickets. Now, in the second scenario, which I would say is more common, right? Way more common. Yeah. Um, you're going to get a set guarantee, which Matt said. So you get like $1,000, and then this is negotiable, but it could be 85% after expenses. And so the $1,000 means you're going to get that $1,000 no matter what. If no one shows up, um, you know, like you're set on that. And the reason um, so many artists, you know, national, international acts um, are going to want the guarantees is because they want to know we're going to we're going to gross fifty thousand dollars of revenue on this tour so we can pay for our hotels and our gas and stuff like that but an artist might want to consider uh an artist might want to consider a door deal if they know they are going to sell tickets which is the case in your hometown because that's actually a better deal even though it might not be as a, as attractive because you're not getting that five thousand dollar guarantee or whatever. Yeah, and I, I think especially the smaller tour touring bands too. Yeah. Sometimes it's about just getting reps in, you know. Yeah. And so if there's not a barrier between you and the promoter mm -hmm. um, to say, okay, we know we can sell the tickets, or yeah. we don't know if we can sell yeah. the tickets, but we just need to play in this part of the country. Um, that can be a good rationale to say, I'm gonna take a little bit of upfront mm -hmm. risk as an artist as well. Yeah. You know, ultimately the role of the promoter, one of many roles of the promoters is to take some risk, is to fund yeah. the endeavor. And as an artist then, um, you know, you're in a, a weird position where you say, well, do I want somebody funding this? Yeah. You know, or, um, you know, is this something that I'm willing to, to fund and take some risk on myself? Inherently, I think as a touring artist, you're always taking some level of risk because you do have 
I assume, extremely variable expenses on the road. Right. Um, and so sometimes you hear of, you know, people say, well, we have this huge guarantee for an artist, and the, they get to the venue and say, well, God, this tour is losing money. It's yeah. like, how? Oh, you know, it's like, like, but that is, there's, there's a lot of uh, variance in terms of what it can cost um, to put on a show either locally as a promoter or, uh, you know, as an artist on the road. Well, let's talk about that quickly um, because, so say there's a $10,000 guarantee and the show tanks. Right. Um, you know, I've had experiences where a reputable booking agent, say like Matt Hickey or someone, will be like, hey, can 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 we throw the promoter back some bread? For reduction. You know, yeah. yeah. Can we maybe accept a $9,000 guarantee? And in my experience, that is always the way to go. And it's, you know, I'm projecting, but it's like people remember how they made you feel, not what you did for them. So you might walk away being like, oh, like, I feel, I feel a little bit better about that show. Maybe I'll, you know, consider that artist again, or I, I like Emily as a tour manager, or I like Matt as a booking agent. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to relationships. Yeah. And, and there is, you know, look, if, if you have a 10000 guarantee and the show grossed $6,000, um, you know, at minimum, the promoter has lost $4,000, yes. right? And so... Um, you know, to acknowledge that and say, okay, we'll share in some of this mm -hmm. is a good relationship uh, thing moving forward. And certainly, um, you know, there have been artists over the years where it's been like we've had that conversation and then the next playback, uh, there's been a course correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody's been happy out of it. But it is about maintaining, again, good relationships with everybody. Yeah. So you have a right to keep that $10,000. But in my experience, that's the way to go, especially if the agent's like, hey, let's take care of Matt here. So. Right. Yeah. It's relationships. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Okay. So um, just a few more things um, on this kind of nuts and bolts part. Sure. Um, you know, so when we're saying it's a $5,000 guarantee, maybe 85% after expenses, you, you touched on this, but what are some of those expenses that are deducted before you get that? Well, end? for sure. I mean, the big ones are going to be some combination of advertising, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, production, so stagehands or technicians, um, catering, mm -hmm. you know, if things like hotels are thrown into the deal, that will play in. You know, any kind of house staff, anybody that's staffing the show the night out, security or ticket takers or those sorts of things. It's, it's all in kind of that. Um, you know, at a, a broader level, the uh, promoters will build in, rightfully so, things like rent, mm -hmm. insurance, royalty fees, that kind of thing, like ASCAP and BMI. Um, so, yeah, those are what you can expect. In many cases, you have kind of two kinds of expenses. Well, so one would be like a what they call a documented expense. Yep where I have to produce at settlement some kind of paper to what, show. What settlement? Oh, what settlement? When we get around to how do we decide how the artist gets paid, yeah. which typically uh, takes place at the end of the night on a show uh, between a tour manager and either the mm -hmm. promoter or promoter representative who's there to drop the check off for the artist. Mm -hmm. So when we settle, um, you know, it, it will drop off documentation that shows this is where we spent our marketing money. Here's the payroll for, you know, all of the staffing that we talked about. You know, here's the, the bill for the food that we shopped out, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, so, you know, so we will, that's a documented expense. An undocumented expense is either something that's a variable, 
So like royalties, like ASCAP and BMI will mm -hmm. be an undocumented expense. It'll be a variable undocumented expense. And then we also have things like rent, you know, utilities, things that are, okay, I'm not gonna show you yeah. what we pay annually for this building, but we figured out that it's about XYZ per right. show, undocumented expense. Yeah, and so you said there can be some sketchiness out there. Um, <laughs> we don't have to get too into that, but like for me as a tour manager, especially because I was a young tour manager, I tried to understand every single number, yeah. and sometimes it's just being smart about things. So again, if it's your hometown, um, you know, you, you might not need catering, right? Like you could bring some food from home instead of paying, you know, you're paying just as much, you're, sorry, you're paying less to go to Whole Foods yourself than paying 15% more, if that makes sense. Provided the show is in, in, into points and percentage. Yes. Provided there's a bonus a on the end of the show. That's a very good point. And then it's not like that life-changing, but I would always get towels knocked off because we didn't use them. So if we're getting charged 50 bucks for towels, like... Yeah, I mean, look, I don't charge for towels. Okay, we got our well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> some people, do. I don't, it's nothing against the towel charge. Oh, no, and, and some artists need them, and that's super legit, but True the fact. artists I worked with did not use them. So just keep an eye on, did, did I use this stuff or not? Um, okay, so you talked about, you know, it's frustrating when you book an artist and then they're playing all over town. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, what is a radius clause, and in my opinion, why is it good for artists? A radius clause is... Um, me saying, okay, uh, and, and you see it more with festivals. Mm -hmm. Radius clause, I think, for a venue like mine are more kind of informal. Mm. Um, we don't have it. Some people, a lot of people will write it in. I, mm. I think there's a little bit of um, play with it in terms of the artist. Um, but so it should be a conversation. It shouldn't be, I don't think it should be a hard line. Yep. And a festival is maybe a different story. But a radius clause is me saying, okay, if you come and play Milwaukee, then we have, we draw a circle mm -hmm. uh, and a number of miles that you can't play within that circle. Uh, typically, what, like 90 miles, you know, for a headline act uh, for a radius clause. Um, in that case, you know, you're falling in Milwaukee just short of Chicago. Mm -hmm. You're kind of right on the edge there with Madison. Mm -hmm. You know, people ask me about you know, Milwaukee to Madison, is that a conflict? I really try to not make it be a conflict yeah. because I think they're, they're on market. And so yeah. that's where kind of the conversation comes into play. But, you know, look, you have somebody like Lollapalooza mm -hmm. who has a massive radius clause. Yeah. Multiple states are saying, we don't want our headliner to play whatever, like anywhere in, uh, you know, Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it can be, but that, why is it good for an artist? I think at least um, as far as from a local level, it is the thing that does, or at least from a hard ticket level, mm -hmm. it is the thing that keeps you kind of honest about your routing. Um, so we're looking at what, is the, what are credible markets mm -hmm. that are truly their own markets and not eating into each other. So if we say, okay, I'm going to play Milwaukee and you know, Waukesha, for those not familiar, I guess, with the <laughs> suburbs, that's, mm -hmm. you know, 15 to 20 miles from here. That's, I mean, technically you can do it. And there probably are going to be some people out in the suburb that aren't willing to drive in for the show into the city. But ultimately, what's more likely is you're kind of cannibalizing yeah. uh, both. And for that promoter locally, 
the next time it's time to come around, you don't have an honest read on what your draw is, on how yeah. many tickets you sell in each individual market. Which we'll talk about is going to be very appealing for you to play with artists regionally and, and nationally. Um, and you're right. I think festivals actually are where radius clauses can get kind of a bad rap. Like, I think the Coachella one um, can be very aggressive. Like, don't quote me on this. That's just something people complain about a lot. Like, you can't play L.A. for a year or whatever. I, I will say this. Like, like even those radiuses they'll have, I mean, for the most part, when we're talking about, like, Pitchfork and Lollapalooza yeah. here... Um, we do route a fair amount of shows off of those up, yeah. up here to Milwaukee from Chicago during the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really is, I mean, they don't want us booking their headliner. Sure. And they definitely don't want us booking their headliner in a big outdoor setting. Yeah. Um, but there's still pretty reasonable people working for, yeah. you know, those festivals. And they draw that in as a protection, but it's not an end-all be-all. For sure. And again, what we're talking about here is like, maybe you've built yourself, you know, up locally where you're playing the paps. Like you said, you don't want them playing Cactus Club and a million and a residency and a million other rooms. You want everybody focusing, you know, like your partners on this. You're working together on selling as many tickets as possible. So when do your when do Paps Theater Group shows uh, announce and go on sale? (laughs) I mean, rule of thumb is anytime you know, any period longer than, you know, 30 to 40 days out, hopefully mm-hmm. a little bit longer than that. So there's some time to build awareness. Um, we try not to go too far out. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, we're not the ones defining those time frames. We're working with the artists and either yeah. advising on what do you think is good or not. But in general, it's part of a larger national touring strategy. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we're very accustomed to um, you know, waiting for that marketing letter to come in or at least starting the dialogue. Uh, one of the most dangerous things on my calendar is a date where the artist thinks I'm going to define the on sale mm. because, again, I'm a pretty busy guy. And if we're sitting around waiting for the ticketing letter and the artist emails us six weeks before the show and goes, hey, when are we going on sale? Our answer probably is going to be something like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. how about next week? Right. You know, so it is, from an artist standpoint, um, being proactive about that timing and national coordination is important. Yeah, so what I'm getting at there is when your deal is confirmed, then ask that question, because I also want you to get in the habit. Like, again, some like a, some bars and clubs might be like, oh, like, whenever you want, right? Or Matt's coordinating nationally, but literally, like, um, say I'm a local artist playing one of your rooms, like, what day of the week do you announce, do you announce shows, and what day of the week do you... That's right, yeah, and and so, like... Uh, on our calendar, we're typically doing um, announcements either Mondays or Tuesdays to pull into a Thursday mm-hmm. uh, pre-sale, password-protected pre-sale, and then a Friday on-sale. Yeah, and I also want you to get in that habit because not to speak for you, but if you leak your own show before it's announced, I don't think Matt's going to kick you off your show, probably. Mm, probably not. Yeah, no. <laughs> but a major festival might right? Like something like Coachella is going to be super embargoed. And so if you leak that you're playing it, they're like, bye, we're not dealing with that. It's a very special big deal um, to unveil our lineup. So that's why I think it's good to get in that. We want them to coordinate with you for marketing reasons, but I also don't want them to get kicked off things. Yeah, you don't want to piss anybody off. Yeah, And and it is like, especially as you get more into working with national entities, um, these things are tuned right up to the very minute Yes. that they announce. So if we announce 
five, 10 minutes in advance, um, or if something slips through on a social post, uh, you know, we will get the screaming call from management. Yeah. Why is this up? Yep. And it's because there's a whole tour. The, the whole mm -hmm. thing depends on, uh, a, a, you know, a strategic rollout. Exactly. So, okay, you've confirmed your show. You know from Matt when it's announcing, when it goes on sale. Um, when you have that information, you want to make sure you get, out, get it out to your email list, your text list. Um, obviously, get it up on social media. Make sure you are tagging the venue, tagging the promoter if that's separate, tagging the other artists. We talked a lot about that in the marketing episode. Matt's marketing team can't pop you up into stories and retweet and share and all that if they don't know. And the point is to spread the word, but I think it's also good to show you that we're doing our part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I love it when yeah. an artist comments on one of our posts, by the way. That's a big thing. You know? There you go. So, so easy. Like yeah. Some, <laughs> something clear, you know. Uh, a nice little bonus that you can do. Okay, so I've set up a show with you. Um, what would your protocol be as far as like a press list goes? Like if I say, hey, um, could I access your local press list or could I write a press release to have you guys service? Yeah, both. I mean, we will share. I don't know if everybody does this, but we will share our press, nice. press list with an artist, with a publicist. Um, we have an in-house publicity person who uh, their job is to get the press releases mm -hmm. out um, to wherever it's appropriate. Usually it's a large local, you know, regional mm -hmm. press list. In some cases, it will be a national press release for something that's really, you know, special situation. I'd imagine like Summerfest will send national press releases right. for sure because that's a, a national great announcement. So Matt's showing his Wisconsin nice um, because I would say in general, ask the way I just asked it, like, hey, are, do you have a local press list you could share? Or if not, can I provide a press release for you to service? Because sometimes venues and promoters get very precious about their local press list. So you just don't always know. But it sounds like Matt will hand that off to you. Um, and then you could do a one-page press release, you know, send that on Monday or Tuesday, not on a weekend. Um, but that's, that's great data you can get um, from the promoter. Um, so just a few more things before we open it up for Q&A. Um, also entice your fans to push the show for you. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. when promoters have come to me and said, oh, this, this show isn't going very well, the standard answer is always, we'll do more press, we'll do more radio. <laughs> but if that, thank you for laughing, because if that's the answer, if that would so always solve the problem, then, then we would have done it. If it was only one radio yeah. interview, that's, that's what the problem is. So here's what <laughs> I do that it has been effective, and promoters tend to like it, I mean, feel free to not like this. Yeah. Um, you know, run a viral contest with your fans. So, hey, here's the ticket link to the show. Um, retweet this, share this, you know, post it, and we'll enter you in a contest to be on the guest list. Um, and then we'll, you know, let them know when you're going to pull the name, you know, noon the day before the show. So then you are incentivizing your audience to push the show yeah, for you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it, it's funny how I think one of the earliest lessons I learned in booking and promoting shows was... Uh, you know, as far as publicity goes, as part as far as the things that you do um, from the promoter side, nothing is more powerful than some level of word of mouth yeah. and people organically sharing the message. You can spend all the money that you want, and it's gotten you know social media has dramatically affected uh, you know how we've thought about what mm -hmm. word of mouth means, but um, nothing is more powerful than that. Yeah. There's no question about that. 
And similar to that, you know, whether it's this market or I teach at the University of New Haven, it's the same there. I feel like ground game is still legit. Like yeah, if artists oh yeah. want to set up a street team for their fans, you know, you can pay for pay for posters and flyers, have your fans go around to coffee shops and all that, spread the word, have them take photos and put them on the guest list. I feel like that's been effective. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Great. Um, when someone, you know, when someone is emailing you, and this would be someone from outside of the state, you know, that's mm-hmm. looking looking to play Wisconsin, and, and maybe like your your rooms are a little too big for this. One thing I, I really want to push on you guys is pay attention to metrics, right? So, would it be appealing if someone came to you and said, "Hey, I'm from New Jersey, but like Milwaukee is my number one city on my Spotify metrics. <laughs> yeah. like, I am crushing it." Absolutely. I mean, yeah, especially artists who are in touch with their data and make. Uh, you know, strategic choices mm-hmm. about where they play. Yeah. You know, and, it, and sometimes there's no rhyme or reason as to why a specific artist. I mean, again, mm-hmm. especially at the smaller levels, yeah. it can literally go back to, you know, there's a dorm floor at UWM yeah. that was really into this artist, mm-hmm. and somehow they just, you know, got it out there. Um, you know, if you look at it too, I mean, Radio Milwaukee is a really excellent example of something where I've had um, agents come back where they're like, why the fuck did it sell so well? <laughs> and, you know, because in other markets, it's like we don't have um, radio stations that are willing to take a chance on an artist that doesn't have a clear, like, upward trajectory metric. And uh, so, you do have little anomalies there where it, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that the artist has a local connection mm-hmm. beyond there is some pocket of support that is kind of giving it a little extra jet fuel uh, specifically in the market. Yeah, so that's data you have access to, right? Like your Spotify metrics, your social media metrics, your email list, your text, cl- text message club metrics. Don't just try to book 10 markets and hope that people show up, go to where your fans actually are. And that's going to be really appealing to a promoter like Matt, instead of like a novel of an email all about your music and why you're in a band. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, we use the word support a few times. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Support is like an opening act. We call that support. Yeah. Which to me is a very English term, but we use it here as well. I, I, English term? Well, I feel as a Britpop fan, and oh, I'm going to okay. use another English term, like, you know, they would say punters. Do you know that? No, I don't know Punters what means fans, like a, oh. like a regular person. Like, um, Who knew that? Not in... You knew that? <laughs> no Britpop fans <laughs> in the house. Um, not an industry person. And so regular people would know what the word support means in England, but uh, here it. they don't. Did, did you guys know what support meant? Well, we've got some promoters in the house, too, so... Um, okay, so last question before uh, any audience questions. What do you, okay, so obviously we touched on this a little bit, but you know, you have national, international acts playing your mm-hmm. rooms. Yep. What do you keep in mind when contacting local artists to support national acts? You talked about this a little bit. What do I, well, I mean, for sure, I mean, definitely, what are they going to draw here? Yeah. How hard are they going to work? Um, you know, and is, are there other, you know, is there some other tangible reason why people should care about this? Sometimes it's also really just like the fit, you know? Um, There's an artist here named Holy Pinto, who is, we were, I was looking for artists, an artist open for Jens Lechman. It's very kind of somewhat obscure, kind of twee, you know, whatever that we, he's from, I think it was Norwegian or something yeah. like that. And Jens was playing the backroom at Collectivo looking for 
local support. And I actually emailed the radio station. I said, anybody help me with some suggestions here? And they said, oh, well, here's like a list. And I started looking at Holy Pinto, and it was like he had some crazy long story on his website about going to see Jens Lechman oh, in cool. Milwaukee. And that's what inspired him to like live here and do music here and that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm going to get this guy. Yeah. And it turned out to be great. He was an awesome fit. Jens loved him. And, and that is one of those things where we've kept a real good dialogue mm -hmm. as well. So again, they're just weird little intangibles. It's not, um, you know, these are very in-demand spaces. These are in-demand slots. So there's not going to be a magic, um, you know, formula to it. But uh, there are some good intangibles for sure. And, and again, some of that, you know, timely, relevant uh, asks is important. And for me, reaching out, again, that relationship is really important for me to know who you are in advance or for somebody at the radio station to know who you are um, or for, you know, I, I mean, any of those little networks within the community. Uh, you know, Emily emails me and says, hey, here's an artist I'd like you to try. Um, can we do it? the answer is going to be like, yeah, I trust you, mm. you know, let's do it. It was the ask totally crazy. Mm. No, if it was, you might like literally all the emails where I sit there and go, I got to think about this for like right. three weeks before I can actually come up with an answer. I don't want to disappoint anybody, but it's just like, so, you know, but those relationships are important and trust mm. um, and making good asks. I think are the big pieces of the puzzle. Thank you. But, you know, you're a good promoter because, again, you notice that detail on the website, right? <laughs> like with, with that example. But again, it goes back to what we're talking about with your hard ticket draw, because the reason you might be poking around and adding a first to three or something is because a national show might not be doing well. So it's like, who can bring it, you know, who from Milwaukee can bring in 100 tickets, 200 tickets. And that's why it goes back to you want to be focusing on your Cactus Club show or your backroom at Collectivo yeah. show and not doing a residency. So you, so Matt knows like, oh, this person's always good for 150 tickets. This national act needs it right now. Right, right. Awesome. All right. So what do you want to know from Matt? Any questions from the audience or online? Niall, you're good. It's a lot of info. We we have um, we have some pretty awesome promoters in in the audience too. So I know you guys are good. Um, Maggie. Okay. That's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. We've never not had questions, and I thought this is one where people would want to know stuff. But we're geeks about this stuff, so. I, I, who knows? I, I, they're either bored to death, <laughs> or I've just my encyclopedic. Uh, knowledge of all things everywhere. Any, any jokes? Does anybody have a joke or anything like that? No? No okay. jokes. Okay. We're good. Well, Matt, thank you all so right, much thanks. for your time today. It was awesome <laughs> to see you. Let's give it up for Matt. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. No problem. Okay, so I just want to cover a few things before bringing up our next guest to talk about festivals. Um, merchandise in the live setting. So our Monday episode, just to be confusing, we'll be back on Monday and not Tuesday, um, is all about merch and merchandise. So we'll do a deeper dive then. Um, but as far as your live show goes, um, I was on tour with Zoe Keating once, and she was opening for Imogen Heap, and I'm dating myself, but she had the very good problem of selling out of CDs. And I remember she was very stressed. All these people were discovering her. 
And I kind of calmed her down and said, where are the CDs? And she said, they're in California with my husband, Jeff. And I was like, great, let's accept people's money to purchase the CDs, take down their shipping address, their email, their name, their number, just so we have extra contact info in case we can't read handwriting. And then Jeff can ship the CDs out, right? So um, there's great apps like At Venue um, that can help you keep track of your merch numbers. So you're not just like, oh my gosh, I'm out of stuff. I need to reorder it. I'm going to be out for a few weeks. Um, but get creative. And same with like, you know, a lot of you have experienced supply chain issues with your vinyl manufacturing, right? So if your vinyl is not ready for your release show, you can still pre-order it at the show, even if, um, you know, the the merch isn't there yet. Um I'm going to keep preaching data collection at your shows. Make sure you have your email list, your text list out at the merch table. That can be a great um, icebreaker, too, either for yourself as the artist or a merch person when people are mulling around, like, hey, would you like to sign up for the email list? Or, hey, like, would you like to sign up uh, for the text list? You could also entice them by giving them a sticker or badge or button or something like that to sign up. Um, you are going to quadruple your merch sales if you have a square credit card reader. People are going to spend more. They don't always have a lot of cash. Maybe the venue has an ATM fee. Most of you do a good job, you know, having a Venmo QR code out. Um, but again, you want to make it easy um, for your fans to sell merch or for your fans to buy merch. And then you're also going to at least double or triple your sales if you come and hang out at the merch table afterwards. Um, I work with... Um, and my company works with an artist named Julia Nunes, and Julia crushes it on merch. I remember her last New York show, the merch line was, no joke, as long as a New York City block. And I said to her, I can't, that's amazing. And she's like, yeah, people, like, you're not the first person to say that to me. And, you know, Julia's very creative and deliberate with her merch. Um, before the show, she had been making flower crowns for her and her band to wear. And then she made like 10 or 20 more and sold those at the merch table for like 30 bucks. Who wouldn't want, you know, a flower crown just like the artist uh, was wearing. And then Julia also um, just had like a holiday light set up um, that was kind of the selfie area. And, and we used to do that in Dresden Dolls World too. Like we would have like a 10, $15 clip light um, from a uh, hardware store, and it would just illuminate the merch table instead of it just being in some, you know, dingy corner of a bar or whatever. And I also remember at that New York show with Julia Nunes, um, she got off stage, and I was by the merch table, and she sprinted to the merch table and was out of breath to say hi to her fans and greet them. And she, you know, she's a six-figure Kickstarter artist. She has a really special, intimate relationship with her fans. And that's why I'm like, girl, you could have like peed or like, you know, taken a sip of water or taken a breath or something, but no, she literally ran to the merch table. Um, and then just really quick, we touched on this uh, with Matt. Um, when you are booking shows or if or someone's booking a show for you or your team, um, you know, is booking shows, because I, I don't think agents pay enough attention to this. You really have to pay attention to metrics. Um, go to where your fans are, pay attention to your social media metrics, your Spotify metrics, your email list, your text, text met metrics. Um, and also, you know, when you've built yourself up regionally, say you're selling, you know, 100 tickets, you know, a few hundred tickets here, um, obviously, you want to be playing Minneapolis, you want to be playing Chicago. Instead of looking at some outdated spreadsheet of artists, go over to Chartmetric, which is going to tell you the top trending artists in each city. And I have to tell you, because um, that's how we book um, 
I voted festival for our nonprofit. We booked the top trending artists in each state. And when I downloaded the top trending artists uh, in Wisconsin, the ones I had heard of that are kind of like, you know, press will write about, um, you know, Milwaukee artists to watch at South by Southwest didn't really have a lot of fans. Um, the number one trending artist in Wisconsin last year, the last time I looked, was a Thai pop band that I had never heard of, right? So you want to open, if it fits your genre, for the Thai pop band equivalent in Minneapolis or Chicago that maybe doesn't have like some artistic press shot with a piano in the river or whatever that looks cool, but actually has fans. And I just remember that, that artist having like hundreds of thousands of more streams than anyone else in Wisconsin. So pay attention to what people are listening to where and reach out to artists that way. And like I said, when you've built yourself up, you know, locally, then you can reach out to artists regionally and be like, hey, I'm good for 200 tickets in Milwaukee. Um, would you like to come open for me? I would like to open for you in Cleveland, Detroit, Minneapolis, you know, wherever you're talking to folks. Um, and that's also the case internationally. I was working with Image and Heap and Jakarta was outperforming entire countries on her social media insights or on her social media analytics and um, the, her manager went to the booking agent and said, and obviously Jakarta, you know, Jakarta is a city, um, said, hey, can you check out what's going on in Indonesia? Like these metrics are through the roof. And the booking agent said, oh, there's no music industry there. Don't even bother. And he said, can, can you just go check? And she came back with a slew of six-figure offers that they never would have known about had they not paid attention to their social media metrics. Um, I did the same thing uh, working with Brendan Benson of the Raconteurs. Um, Brendan is based in Nashville. You know, he usually does well in traditional industry markets like New York and London. But I saw that things were really going off on in his metrics um, in Sao Paulo. So I did the same thing. I reached out to the agent and, and I said, what's going on in Brazil? And she booked, this, booked us this amazing and really successful Brazilian tour. Um, and also, I was on that tour as well. And it was also like really emotional because the fans were so passionate because especially in the pre-digital era, the traditional music industry from an American perspective would have artists tour the US, then go to the UK and Europe, go to Japan, not even like the rest of Asia, um, and go to Australia and then go to South America if they're not too burned out. So again, pay attention to where your fans are regionally and internationally because then you can reach out to a promoter in Ireland and be like, hey, I'm huge in Dublin. Like, did you know that? I want to come play there instead of just, you know, picking random markets. Okay, so I'm super excited. Um, we added a second guest to this episode. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Scott Zeal first before bringing him on. Scott is the VP of Entertainment for Milwaukee World Festival, Inc., which produces Summerfest, which I'm told is one of the largest music festivals in the country. I thought it was the largest, you guys. I wanna, um, I'm just going to say Summerfest is the largest because I'm biased. Scott and the entertainment team work year-round to secure hundreds of artists for, for the festival's 12 stages, including the 24,000-seat American Family Insurance Amphitheater. Scott leverages his relationships with top actors top agents, managers, and music industry executives to find the biggest names in the industry to deliver a diverse lineup for Summerfest. He also works in conjunction with festival sponsors to program the festival stages. Early in his career, Scott established his own company, Don't Records, an independent label that helped bring Willie Porter, Paul Sieber, Citizen King, and others to the national stage. 
Additionally, Scott served as founder and principal of Pursuit Management, an entertainment consultancy firm that served as talent for numerous national music festivals, universities, and corporations. I'm super excited to introduce Scott Zeal. Let's give it up for Scott. Um, you went to St. Norbert. What did you study there? Um, I studied business marketing, and I basically, uh, my brother was playing in bands when we were in high school. He got grounded one summer, taught himself how to play acoustic guitar and write songs. So I was the guy who was hanging up posters, running around promoting shows in high school, and then going to college. At that point, there was really... There were no music business career opportunities. So I just did everything I could. I was on a concert committee. I eventually ran the radio station when people were playing vinyl. And it was, you know, it was college radio was actually a really great vehicle at the time for bands to get known. So, yeah, that's what my college experience was like. Yeah, and just a reminder, so you don't have to spend $200,000 a year to go to a fancy uh, music business school, Mm -hmm. um, even though I teach at them, right? So just start doing it. Start promoting your brother. There's so much opportunity around you everywhere. Absolutely. I mean, you just have to be aggressive and go find what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a compliment. Um, You've been working with Summerfest since I was 10 years old. How did that gig come about for you? Wow, I'm old. It's, it's, it's impressive old. to me, especially in any job, but let alone the music business where people are constantly changing jobs. So again, the graduated from St. Norbert with a marketing degree. The, the first job, I think, that was the closest to the music business was selling radio advertising and then eventually working for what was kind of the early equivalent of like the Shepherd Express or the Onion selling advertising and in the um it's called downtown edition and downtown editions at that time had um this guy by the name of jeff castellas oh yeah i know sorry to interrupt no i'm gonna usurp your story for a second (laughs) i met jeff in france at meet m and we were talking and hitting it off and he was like he's like are we going to fight on the panel tomorrow? We must have been on panel together. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a nice uh, person from Wisconsin. And then he's like, where? So anyway. and it was all over with. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. So Jeff was managing. He was a snotty, super smart kid going to school at Marquette. He was managing a band called Wild Kingdom that eventually became Citizen King or parts of them. And he, um, he was the writer, the music writer. And, Music was such a big component of that newspaper. Um, Leslie, who went on to open up restaurants like Fuel Cafe and Bel Air, she was a design person. So we just had a really unique group of people kind of stuck in like this mold of a downtown business Mm -hmm. newspaper, but kind of breaking out on the music side. So I met those guys. I also met two musicians, Joe Vince and Brian Woolridge, who had a record label that they started to put out their own music called Don't Records. They didn't really have much business savvy, so I kind of came in on that side. And then we just basically started working with every great you know, Milwaukee musician who was doing something. We met this guy, Willie Porter. <sighs> Willie came to us one day. He's like, hey, man, you know, like the first time I put out my CD... 
I pressed up a thousand of them and I went on the road and they kept calling the exclusive company was calling and saying, hey, I can't, I need more CDs. And so he's like, I sold 10,000 CDs and maybe this time you could help me out yeah. with distribution. So yeah, we just had a really good run with Willie, Paul Seabar. I mean, the whole Citizen King thing was happening. Promise Ring were happening. The Guffs were happening. Um, we eventually worked with a band from Chicago called the Cupcakes, who were assigned to DreamWorks. So I was doing that, which made me no money, but it was, you know, it was good. Yeah. I mean, it was there was some money to be made, but at the same time, I got lucky and and I met the Summerfest people. Mm -hmm. I started doing contracts and 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 stuff for them seasonally. And eventually, after a year or two of doing it, the entertainment director Bob Babish. I approached him. I said, hey, there's this band there. I don't really think that they're anything special, but they're called Sister Hazel. And they just, they put out a song and this agent's been calling me because you won't take his phone call. And um, I think that they're going to have a big song and we should book them. And he's yeah. like, well, okay, why don't you put up, you know, type up an offer. And the agent at the time did something kind of really strange where he said, um, well, I can't really take you know, such a small offer, but I'll make a deal with you. If this band has a song in the top 10 on the pop charts by the time or before Summerfest happens, I get a bonus. I said, well, that sounds interesting. So we went mm -hmm. for it. And of course they had a number one song and then I looked good. And then they let me start booking some bands for them. Wow. I hey. love that. Um, so most people know what Summerfest is even nationally, but mm -hmm. it's, it's such a unique festival and event. Tell, tell us about Summerfest for those that don't know. I mean, there, yes, it is very unique and special. I mean, it was basically started in 67 or 68. It was something that Henry Meyer, um, you know, he came from Germany. He knew about Oktoberfest and how that was such in Munich, Germany, and how that really brought everybody together, all walks of life. Celebration of music and art and culture and food and everything. And, and during that time in Milwaukee, I mean, there were a lot of racial problems. There were a lot of, you know, disparities. And so he was looking for something that, you know, everybody could participate in mm -hmm. and to unify the community. And I think the way I understand it is that the Summerfest site where we are right now was you know, one of multiple locations that Summerfest would happen throughout the course of the city. But as Summerfest started and became successful over a couple of years, the lakefront became the perfect place. And for obvious reason that, you know, people want to hang out during the summer on the lakefront. So, I mean, the mission, and it continues today, and my, my boss, Bob um, Babish, who was doing the entertainment director's job for 46 years, just retired at the end of this year. He's still a consultant with us, but he always reminds me and our um, organization, David Silba and other buyers, that you know, we're, we are here to do something for everyone. We're, we're here to offer all different styles of music, different experiences. We're, you know, we're here for the people. And so I think that the, um, what makes Summerfest really unique and special being that we're not just programming one style of music or catering to a, one specific audience is, is really cool. And, you know, it can work to our disadvantage sometimes, you know, with, um, 
you know, unless you've been to the festival, like if you're living in LA or New York, just an average music lover, you know about certain festivals, certain events that have, you know, a very specific um, purpose and reputation and they're, um, you know, and then you hear about Summerfest, you're like, well, I've heard good things, but I don't really quite understand what it is. Mm -hmm. So when people come here and see it and see that we're on the lakefront, 75 acres, permanent structures, mm -hmm. stages, bathrooms, restaurants, um, that a lot of festivals, you know, build out their own site, it's it's pretty, um, that's when people really make the connection. Yeah, and that's definitely what I've heard from colleagues nationally when they've come in and they've had artists playing. It's the, the permanent part really right. blows people's minds. And just explain kind of the the format and layout to like how it all works, how like even ticketing works and stuff like that. Because again, all that is very unique. Sure. Um, so we basically have 75 acres along the lakefront. We have um, the site, we have a north, a mid, and a south gates. Um, Every single day that Summerfest is open for the first three hours, there is a way to get in free. Mm -hmm. So it could be two, you know, canned food items, a book, a piece of clothing, a, a promotion that we do. So we pride ourselves in giving, we're very, a great cost effective um, events. So mm -hmm. at the most that you're going to pay to get into Summerfest on the weekend at a later time is $25. Um, so I, I, I always put it, we have like seven kind of permanent music stages mm -hmm. that range in capacity from the Midgate stage that holds about 3,000 people all the way up to our two biggest stages, which are Generac and Miller, reaching full capacity at probably about 15,000 people when an area is totally packed. Um, at the south ends, we have... Um, the Bebo Harris Pavilion, that's the one that has um, a roof on it. We have seating for 5,000 people undercover, and then probably another three or 4,000 people that can stand outside of it. And with a video screen, you have a pretty good look. Um, so those are our main music stages. We have lots of other offerings in terms of we have a sports area, children's area, Northwestern Mutual just helped us um, redesign and build this beautiful um, children's area. If you have kids, like everyone's down there all the time, including Giannis and other uh, our local celebrities. Um, so lots of food options, you know. And then we try to bring in kind of a rotating cast of like traveling, you know, like vendors or experiences. So you might walk past something that is, you know, kind of a sports-related thing or sampling beverages. Or American Family Insurance does this thing called the House which is um, an intimate they build. If you walk in the main gate where the splash pad is, there's um, it's a facility that's open during the day to kind of like have fun, go into a photo booth, get a special AmFam pack. And then we do um, like a stripped down concert series for about 50 to 75 people where they get an intimate experience with a headliner during the day. Um, see them perform, question and answer, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, lots of, there's just a lot of activity. And then of course the, you know, the, the, the big uh, venue is the American Family Insurance Amphitheater. Um, we, during COVID, we had, prior to COVID, we started remodeling it to went uh, like a $53 million renovation. 
where we raised the roof of the amphitheater so that we could fit basically any um, touring production that's out there um, and basically redid the whole place. So we started with the, um, the backstage. We knocked out everything, rebuilt dressing rooms. We um, created better sight lines in raising the roof. Like I said, I mean, kind of like I had a show we like one of my favorite bands is Radiohead. We had them confirmed one year, and they called our production people and said, "Yeah, we can't fit our sound and lights in there, so we can't come." And we're Radiohead, so we're not going to mm-hmm. leave stuff in the truck. So raising the roof was huge. Yeah. Then so then after COVID, as it finished, then we had done we redid all the bars and the bathrooms and the restaurants, all the the patron facing forward facing things we reopened um the amphitheater with foo fighters they dave and the guys came in to do grand opening show for us so the amphitheater is a place where you know you see all the big tours um we still try to keep it as affordable as possible for our customers that there's always you know a 25 or 30 dollar lawn seat Certainly, you know, more expensive seats as you get closer. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's the overview of what we do. Well, thank you for those renovations so we can get Radiohead and <laughs> artists like oh, that. Yeah, I, I, and I did not get a chance to see um, the, his, his smaller version at the, uh, at the Riverside a couple months back. Um, but, yeah. Knock on wood, someday. Okay, well, that was an amazing um, uh, explanation and description. So how do you and your team go about booking Summerfest when there's so many stages and and so many variables? It's it's very fun and exciting, and it's very challenging in the same breath because we're not... um, You're not focused on one style of music Mm. all the time. You're focused on all these different genres. And then you're also, I mean, we book, you know, local bands for 250 bucks mm-hmm. all the way up to, you know, big tours for $2 million and everything in between. Um, so I would like to say, you know, again, to phrase Bob, my boss, I mean, we're a sponge. We're basically, <laughs> we are looking, we are listening to anyone in our community to tell us, what they like, who they're going to see. I'm always blown away and surprised by, you know, the the barista or the person, the, the girl at the public market or the guy who's your mechanic and how diverse people's musical tastes are mm-hmm. and that they don't fit into any sort of mold anymore. Um, so, you know, we... David Silbaugh, Sean McDonough, Bob Babish, who's now a consultant, Vic Thomas. Um, our team is, we're talking to everyone locally. We're talking to, you know, all the names that you know, discuss with Matt. I mean, the, the Radio Milwaukee, all the clubs, um, you know, the critics, seeing who they're writing about were, you know, Discovery, I think, is the greatest thing mm-hmm. in our business is, is to find um, a great voice, a great song, a great performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that's why we go to work because we get excited about it. And we want to be almost like the first to the table. Um, you know, we look to 
you know, watching the evolution of somebody playing, you know, Cactus or the Back Room all the way up to, you know, hearing that a band has sold out the Miller High Life Theater. And um, so, you know, all those things as they react locally, also in the Midwest, um, and then on a national level, you know, clearly um, our business has evolved and changed in terms of like how, you know, how do you decide to say, here's, here's an artist that we're really excited about booking. So we know that we want to book them, but what are they worth to us? And how do we measure that? And how do we predict? And sometimes very successfully, yes. And sometimes we trip and fall on our face. You know, like how, you know, what, what's a band going to draw or yeah. what was, what's it going to be like six months from now? So those are, uh, it's a, it's a crazy process. Well, that's why metrics are so powerful too. And maybe I should learn the name of this Thai pop band in Wisconsin that I keep talking about. <laughs> but again, like you guys can pay attention to what you're doing on chart metric and then approach Summerfest and be like, do you know I'm the fourth most popular artist in Wisconsin? Because again, I was really stunned to see who are the, who the top artists are versus who they aren't to be, which isn't really a question. It's just, that's something I could do an entire podcast episode on. Um, how far out do you guys start booking Summerfest? I have an offer for 2024 right now. There you go. For, for an amphitheater show. Um, yeah, it's become, um, you know, as, and I think that, you know, the streaming has caught up in terms of like legitimizing the revenue that an artist is making by, you know, three, four, five years ago or during that transition period. I mean, <clears throat> touring live music is, uh, or performance is, was, was the main um, uh, source of revenue for an artist. So it became really important, really thought out. So planning earlier and earlier all yeah. the time. Yeah. A hundred percent. Picking things back up. Um, how do you keep track of talent and what is now an industry of infinite genres? You try and do your best. It's really amazing like how the, I mean, the technology for someone who is a great songwriter, a great vocalist, can record in their house, put out music by themselves. They can gain uh, following very quickly. And so anytime like breaking it down by different styles of music, you think you understand like, okay, I know everything about this you know, mm. style and then you, you clearly no. don't, right, yeah. I mean, I was kind of joking before the break about hearing an agent, hearing yeah. from an agent, calling you to say that they want to get a show for uh, an artist that they're signing from Wisconsin or newly signed and you're super excited to hear like which of your favorite bands or artists is, is getting, you know, the big gig with a, a major talent agency and then it's somebody you have yeah. never heard of and there's a girl um I, it's pronounced burr and she is from somewhere between like lacrosse i think she might have some ties to minneapolis because she's recorded and big agent called up a couple years ago two years ago and said i've signed this girl burr you should mm -hmm. you should book her of course i fell in love with her music mm -hmm. as quickly as everyone else. She was really unpolished, mm -hmm. but what everything was kind of just breaking through and totally made sense. And it's been fun. We booked her last year and probably have her again this year. And you know, 
feel like she's going to be a big star someday. I love that. So what are you looking for in local talent to book at, book at Summerfest? Because I do feel like that's a conversation very often amongst local artists here. I mean, in a perfect world, the, um, you know, the artist would draw a big crowd for us. I think first and foremost, it's about the music. If, if, it's, if, you're, if you're doing something that's unique and original and compelling, that's what we're looking for. Because we feel like we can be a part, can invest in helping your career grow mm-hmm. by performing at Summerfest. Um, you know, a lot of times we look at, um, you know, unique packages where we say, okay, well, there's a local artist that we've just gotten turned on to in the last six months. Where can we put them in front of a well-known artist that their fans are going to totally fall in love with them? So it's, I mean, it's not any different than, you know, what Matt and Gary do at the, at the Paps Riverside. It's, um, I think it's just, Something that music that stands out, any of the things I mentioned, compelling, could be, you know, a great live show, some sort of unique kind of spin on, you know, how the production is or mm-hmm. costumes or something. You just you're looking for like, wow, this is really cool, and I really want to help mm-hmm. these folks out. I mean, that's what we look for. And I've been hearing a few things from both you and Matt. So you want to draw a big crowd, so hard ticket sales, right? So if you're able to approach, you know, um, the folks that book Summerfest and say, I can sell out Cactus Club, you know, I'm selling a few hundred tickets at Backroom at, at Collectivo. Um, also, if you can go to them with metrics, with the, if, if I can find, you know, again, I'll, I'll put the Thai pop band's name in the show notes. But, mm-hmm. like, if someone approaches you and is like, I'm the top streaming artist in Wisconsin... I think that's going to be appealing, right? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, that's how I think that's how we're judging the national acts for sure. It's like there's a magic little service that we subscribe to that's not cheap. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, you can go to any billboard or any kind of music trade and see, okay, like SZA is killing it right now. She's bigger than... You know, Taylor Swift, and mm-hmm. she's bigger than Morgan Wallen and all these massive artists. And so that's on a national level, you see what she's doing. But there's a way to also um, um, judge or um, figure out what Milwaukee people are actually listening to. And it can be, you know, across all genres or specific styles of music. So on a national level, the streaming stuff is huge. That's what we, we kind of feel like. You can't lie about that. Yeah. I mean, you can say that you're huge, um, you know, all around the United States, but in our market, you might be bigger than a different market or you might be smaller than what you're claiming to be. Yeah, and it sounds like the other factor is relationships. You know, you're relying on your, your contacts at Radio Milwaukee and different tastemakers in the community. So again, these are things that you can take control of, believe it or not, because I do feel like it's not just in Milwaukee. In a lot of um, different markets, people are like, well, you know, the radio station's not reaching out to me or the festival or the promoter isn't reaching out to me. And it's like, you know, we have it. We had Evan Retleski in the last episode and I encouraged Niall, you know, Niall was asking about like, well, what happens when I email a journalist, they write back, I respond, and then I don't hear back. I'm like, follow up, 
it's okay. You know, like you're totally not being annoying and doing that. So that's part of it, building those relationships. But again, paying attention to your metrics in chart metric, because again, we live in this infinite genre. Like when Scott and I were first coming up, music was finite, right? There was only so many people. Like I knew, I felt like I knew every artist in every genre. And now like we're talking about, I could never know all the Britpop bands or whatever, right? So like pay attention to your metrics. That's powerful. Then you can go to festival promoters and you can go to major concert promoters with that info. Um, Build up your hard ticket draw and don't be scared to follow up with someone that's already responded to you. So um, the Music Industry Database roster regularly releases stats on major festivals surrounding the number of BIPOC and women uh, BIPOC and women slash non-binary artists. Um, I feel like Summerfest is in a like cool and unique position because you guys book so many genres. Um, so what are you doing or how have you thought about supporting equity for underserved artists so you could be a leader in the festival space? I don't know if you've seen, like, Roster puts out a Coachella poster um, and just leaves the women and non-binary acts on there and it's pretty small, right? So mm-hmm. is that something you guys ever talk about or think about or are working towards? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's been... Again, it, I think that just goes back to the foundation of what the you know, what Summerfest is all about. What we started doing, is, you know, in the something for everyone category yeah. is, I mean, and it's, I think it's been easier just because there, um, the level of talent in, you know, female talent in so mm-hmm. many different styles of music. I mean, it's, uh, you know. There are a lot of very talented people that we are always very focused on. That's great to hear. Um, And huge congratulations on growing Summerfest into a national brand. I don't feel like that was the case when I was growing up, but it's definitely um, the case now. You guys have done, you know, national media announcements. You've had Jimmy Kimmel um, announce the lineup. So how, how will the event continue to grow and evolve over the coming years? I think that that's something that we're really always focused on is, you know, again, how do you um, create, you know, a national, you know, having Summerfest being more of a national uh, destination. I mean, I I feel like we do a pretty good job in the Midwest in terms of resources to advertise to people, hey, you know, it's like if you're going to go to Lollapalooza or go to Bonnaroo or Electric Forest, you know, those are really amazing uh, festivals. You're going to have to spend a lot of money mm-hmm. to get there. There's definitely, it's worth every penny that you're going to spend. Consider us as being kind of like this, you know, super cost-effective uh, festival experience where you can come here and, you know, get in for a much lower price, yeah. see a lot more diversity in terms of mm-hmm. what we're offering, um, you know, and then you, you have the money to, you know, get your hotel room or, you know, go out and eat and drink. And um, so I think that we're constantly trying to, you know, reach people in that way to have them come. And I think just the city of Milwaukee, I mean, I'm, you know, I have lots of friends who have been in Chicago for years who are moving back to Milwaukee yeah. for a wide variety of reasons and how the lakefront is, continues to develop the culture here. 
um, continues to develop everything that we're offering. It's with less traffic and, yeah. uh, you know, it's less expensive to live here. Those are all things that are very appealing to people. Yeah. And like I said, I've had a lot of national and international industry colleagues um, with artists play the event and they come here and they think it's amazing. So definitely encourage people to check it out. Sure. Um, last question for me before any audience questions. I just learned about Summerfest Tech. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Summerfest Tech is, uh, when it is, what it's all about? Well, and I think that someone that I'm sitting across from is going to be a part of it. Haven't announced too. that yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have the exact date in front of me. I have it in some notes. But Summerfest Tech is basically, um, you know, we have these great Milwaukee-based companies that have um, our leaders in different areas of technology. Um, we had somebody on our staff who came up with this idea mm -hmm. to get um, thought leaders in the community together. It started at the, um, it was always the day before Summerfest at the, um, the Johnson Control stage. And I think that they tapped into the entertainment departments to, to talk about like, how many are there musicians out there that would want to come and be a part of this? And like, I think the first year, you know, Steve Aoki mm -hmm. was somebody that on so many different levels, he was doing so many unique things that he came in and was one of the speakers. But in the last couple of years, it just really has blossomed. And I think that's, you know, um, it's a very unique event that um, brings so many different thought leaders together. Um, we're really excited about presenting it again this year and the growth of it. Cool. I can't wait. Um, so any questions for Scott, either online or in the audience, on festivals, how to get booked on festivals? We're good. Yeah, Niall. How you doing? My name is Niall. Um, I was wondering... How does an artist submission uh, to get an opportunity to book at a festival, uh, you know, as far as like maybe like an email, you know, with um, set information look like to you? Honestly, I mean, you guys, it can be done in so many different ways. I mean, um, just getting our contact information, sending us a note, just, uh, hey, this is what I'm doing. Um, here are a couple. I. What I really like is something that's kind of short and sweet, but that has some quick links to music. And I also really like it backed up with um, some live performance footage, just so it's like, you know, I hear music, I hear songs, things that I like, and then it really seals the deal if I can see you in a club or another events and people going crazy singing along. So, I mean, just sending us emails. We do have a submission platform, and I think that it has passed already. We, we use Reverb Nation for a three, four month period of time um, leading into the festival season. Um, so any of those ways, and I just think that like, you know, being um, <clears throat> in the community, talking to the radio stations, sending your music to, any of the music publications to get them to write about what you're doing. Eventually, we're going to hear about you. Yeah. Niall is super legit. You should book Niall. I'm awesome. not just saying that. He's totally on fire right now and has all of those things. Okay. So. I'm ready. I, 
<laughs> but seriously, I hope everybody connects afterwards because I'd love to see him at Summerfest. And just on, you know, like, I think the process, again, we live for the excitement of hearing about somebody that's new. So, I mean, the approach to reaching out to people is just like a quick note. Yep. Hey, this, what's going on? When you have a minute, could you check out my music? Come see my show. If it's been a couple of weeks and one of us hasn't responded, just another polite kind of like, hey, I'd really love to hear from you. Um, or even like sometimes, you know, are you the right person mm -hmm. that I should be sending my music to? I mean, we have a staff of like, you know, four or five people. So we kind of delegate a little bit. Um, so I think that just, you know, that kind of simple approach is, we're, we're definitely reachable for sure. I love it. Anyone else? Yeah. Matt, got to give you the mic. Love it. Oh, okay. Scott, I'm going to ask you a question I legitimately want to know the answer to. I'm really scared. That's okay. We talked about soft tickets and hard tickets. Yes. You know, Behringer knows pretty formulaically how you pay an artist on a hard ticket. What is, what is that formula for a soft ticket? That's a very good question. Um, well, since your company is the benchmark for <laughs> how we figure things out, I kind of view, um, again, it's like if a, if a band, a national band comes into the market, if we're talking about national talent and plays a 100 to 200 person club, I kind of attach a rough price to that because I know if you're paying 20 bucks at the door and there's a couple hundred people there, I know how much money that that artist is making. And I'm a festival, so any agent or managers out there is going, hey, let's charge the festival more money because they got lots of it. So if you make, uh, you know, $2,000 at a club, that means that's, uh, I'm being asked to pay $10,000. Mm -hmm. Or if you're selling 1,500 tickets I'm, and you can figure out what the gross receipts are, I'm being charged or being asked to you know, charge double. So we have like rough benchmarks on how we look at hard ticket sales um, and as it relates to us booking an artist, you know, we have some very, um, we have some smaller spaces on the grounds, like the Midgate stage, the JCI stage, um, or then it kind of gradually goes up to our two biggest spaces. So I always try to figure out what I think, like if, if a band was coming to town, where they would go play for, for Matt and for Gary. And then mm -hmm. if it's somebody who's really big, then they get a gig at the Miller stage or at the Generac stage or maybe BMO. If, if it's if it's you know they're playing a smaller club, um, then they're playing at a smaller space. I love it. So sell those hard tickets, people. Really makes a difference. Don't spread yourself out um, too thin with a million shows. Um, any other questions for Scott? All right, let's give it up for Scott. You're going to be stuck with me for a few more minutes while I wrap up the topic. Thank you so much. You. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so um, I just want to talk about house shows for a second. Um, that can be a great revenue stream. Um, it obviously 
totally stopped with all touring um, during the pandemic. But I've had, I remember I was working with a Chicago band called Gold Motel and they were opening for Hello Goodbye making, you know, 250 bucks a night. Um, we booked a few fan house shows that were like um, graduation parties, birthday parties, got a few thousand dollars a night from that. Um, Julia Noons, who I mentioned, will do entire house show tours. There are, re- there are reputable companies that will help you with this. Make sure you are not alone. Um, in the book this podcast is uh, based on, I literally copied and pasted the information from Julia on how she professionalizes her house shows. It's like, this is when I arrive. This is how long the set is. We do merch, you know, free stuff for the hosts. I'm out of there by 10 o'clock. Um, so keep that in mind if it's something you're interested in. Um, Also, the webcasting space has obviously exploded uh, during the pandemic. So that's something you can start playing around with uh, for promo. Um, You know, obviously popping on Instagram Live once in a while if you want to set up regular Twitch streams. Um, But then have a strategy beyond that as you grow, grow your career, right? Like you could do a live stream on volume. At I Voted Festival, we work with Mandolin. Um, there's, you know, another company called Fly Machine. There's just a lot of investment going into the webcasting space. And have a strategy, right? Like, um, are you doing a set of all covers? Do you have an exclusive piece of merch that's only available at that webcast? Um, get So get creative with your webcast as well. And again, don't go on Instagram Live just like your in real life shows, like, every single day. Um, you know, maybe do a few teasers here and there building up to your webcast where um, maybe you're making a big announcement that that's exclusively there. So keep that in mind. Um, I want to touch on quickly what booking agents are looking for. This is a question I get um, a lot from artists and it's kind of the answer to everything on this episode. They're looking for hard, not just hard ticket sales, they're looking for hard ticket sales from you regionally. So if you sell, you know, 100 tickets in your home market, 300 tickets, even 500 tickets, that's a phenomenal accomplishment. Don't get me wrong. Um, Again, we're obviously recording this season in Milwaukee. Um, So they're like, great, you're good for 300 tickets. What's your draw in Chicago? What's your draw in Minneapolis? And that's when um, you really want to be setting up gig swaps with other artists. Like I said, paying attention to metrics, see who's really going off um, in the cities around you, asking if they would like to come open for you at your home city or your hometown, and then you know making a trade so you can you can reach out to them. And I also hear from artists uh, very often, like, oh, well, you know, the first part is which I just covered. Like, if I get a booking agent, I can get on the road. Um, like I said, they're very like spreadsheet oriented people. They love music also. Um, But, you know, even before the pandemic, there were agents dropping beloved acts who didn't sell enough tickets. And now we've been through the great agency reshuffle of, um, you know, COVID and and the pandemic. So now it's like you really got to sell tickets. But along those same lines, I hear from artists like, oh, if I can get a booking agent, then I'll open for national acts, right? Then I can get those support slots. 98, this is not an official fact, this is just my opinion, 98% of support slots, well, 100% are decided by the headlining artist, right? Doesn't matter who your manager is, doesn't matter who your agent is. Like, yes, we can help get you in front of certain people, but at the end of the day, it's going to be the headlining artist making that decision because just like you, they want to travel and tour with people they like, musicians they like, right? So that's why it's so important for you to be getting out to shows, building and building your artistic community and genuinely, um, you know, making friendships and relationships because that that's how that happens. Um, 
When the Dresden Dolls opened for Nine Inch Nails in the in fairly early days of their career, um, it was because Trent Reznor saw you know, one of the band's DIY videos late at night on MTV2. And I guess he said, I don't know if I love this or hate it, um, but it stood out to him. And um, so he said to his agent, Mark Geiger, hey, let's let's book this Dresden Dolls band. And I'm sure Mark was very comforted um, that his good friend Mike Luba was the manager and, you know, there was a team around it. So that stuff helps. But, you know, a lot of times you'll see... Um, agent saying, you know, Death Cab for Cutie or someone is going on tour and we're looking for support submissions. And then artists are like, do we get it? Do we get it? Um, sometimes it's just like, it's the lay of the land and they want to see what's out there. You know, what? what's that marketing phrase? It's like, you have to hear something five times before you remember it. So I think it's good to submit, but ultimately it's like, do you, you know, do you have a relationship with Ben? Do you have a relationship, you know, with the actual artists on the tour. So I just want to dispel some of that, the like, oh, I have an agent that will get me on the road and that will get me support slots. Don't get me wrong. There are amazing agents that hustle and bust their butt, but really like 98% of those support slots are ultimately, you know, booked by the headlining artist. Maybe 2% is an agent that's really hustling for that. Maybe 5%. I could be a little nicer, to, nicer about that. Um, as I mentioned, I used to tour manage. So um, keep in mind maximizing your tour profits. And you can also do this as your touring career grows um, by not spending on every bell and whistle that's available, right? Um, I think we did this pretty well in Dresden Dolls World. It started out just with a local sound person and then myself as a merch person slash tour manager. As they got bigger, we did add um, a lighting person and a monitor person. Um, but it's like, do you need a tech for every instrument, right? Or maybe there's techs that can double up on multiple instruments. Are you willing to share hotel rooms with your bandmates and things like that? Like, I want you to be comfortable. But I remember we were on tour in Australia once and uh, having a conversation with Ben Folds, who happened to be on tour. And look, a tour bus when I was touring, and this is like before what the gas prices are now, and I'm sure it's more. But when I was touring, a tour bus was $1,000 a day. I'm sure it's closer to $1,500 or $2,000 a day, depending on how nice the bus is. And so Ben Folds was telling us about how he was given two tour, uh, tour budgets, one with a bus and one in a van. And in the van option, he would bring home an extra six figures. And he's like, I'm totally cool. You know, I'm dating myself, but rolling up to The Late Show with David Letterman in a van, right? So if it's good enough for Ben Folds, um, it's probably good enough for the rest of us. So again, keep that in mind. As your touring income grows, um, just be mindful of expenses because you probably aren't going to be able to tour forever for a variety of reasons kids, age, whatever. Um, so try to maximize your tour profits by not spending on every bell and whistle. At the same time, one way to generate more revenue uh, in the live space is VIP packages. That's something that's really exploded, I'd say, over the past 10 years or so. And I feel that artists at all levels can do that. You can even do it with your webcasts, right? Like you could do a private meet and greet on a webcast that's a Q&A, you know, for fans that are willing to pay a little bit more. Or you could do a special webcast that's, you know, just, you just take requests, you know, if, if you're comfortable doing that. Um, but even like, you know, at the up and coming level, you know, see if, um, well, I was gonna say, see if the promoter's cool with this, but um, you could charge a little bit more for VIP tickets for stuff you're already doing, right? Like if you're comfortable with, um, 
a handful of fans checking out Soundcheck. Maybe you usually get tea after Soundcheck or something. Invite them in on that. So there's other revenue streams to build on your traditional touring uh, revenue streams. Um, just two more things, and then I'll let you guys go. Uh, one revenue we'll, We're going to have a whole revenue stream checklist episode to review a lot of this stuff. But one revenue stream, I would consider a consider it a bonus revenue stream that I don't think nearly enough artists take advantage of outside of the, I feel like jam band scene doesn't like that phrase, but the jammy scene or whatever, um, is recording your shows. So in the pre-digital era, um, you know, your label would not let you record your own shows because they didn't want it competing with the CD and vinyl sales. Now, most of you own your rights and we have the technology to record our own shows. And I totally understand why artists might not want to do this. We are all perfectionists. Um, but at the same time, it's not necessarily about the perfect performance or even the perfect recording. Think about it from the fan perspective. Like, oh my gosh, they said Milwaukee. Oh my gosh, I heard myself like scream or yell or whatever, or some like, you know, joke happened or, or some, something that was unique to that show, you, unique to that experience. So think about recording your shows and making them available on your website, even if it's donation-based, subscription-based. I think that's something that legally you guys can now finally do, which the generation before you could not. Um, and that's also something you can do from a tech standpoint. And it's something your fans, you know, would really love. Um, and finally, this is, you know, the... Um, Cliff's Notes version of the first half of the title of this podcast. But again, um, I mentioned this. Make sure you're collecting email addresses, mobile phone numbers at the merch table, and also make sure you're importing them into your lists. Um, I interviewed Zoe Keating for the forward of the book and in season one, and she just puts her text message club um, number up like with poster board at the merch table. And then the phone numbers get in there and she doesn't even have to do anything. But have a process, honestly, like I feel lame saying this, but it's true. Like, you know, however you're going to collect data at the merch table, that is, that's got to be like your gear, right? It's just got to be part of the process um, and make sure you're getting that contact info for the long term. Um, so thanks for being with us. I know that was a long issue. Um, apologies for the tech issues. And just to be confusing, we are going to be back on Mondays in February. We've been doing Tuesdays in January. So come back on Monday at 6.30 p.m. Central on Volume or here at No Studios. And we're going to be doing Merch Recon, Merch Reconnaissance with my friend Christopher Moon at Ambient Inks. We'll catch you then. Thanks so much. Thanks.